you will join me in Luke chapter 13. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will finish out chapter 13, looking at verses 31 through 35. The title of my sermon this morning is Unwilling. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Jerusalem, willing, and prophet. Now, over time, the cities of the world become identifiable because of their geographic landmarks. You know when you're in New York City because of the Statue of Liberty. You know when you're in London because of Big Ben. You know when you're in Paris because of the Eiffel Tower. Sydney is recognizable by the Opera House. Seattle is well known because of the Space Needle. Now, when you mention any of these landmarks, most people are going to easily identify with whatever city you're speaking of. Now, there's other cities that become identifiable to students of history and geography by the events that have taken place within them. For example, no serious historian can think of the city of Boston without thinking of that great tea party that took place in 1773 when the Sons of Liberty led the charge to throw three shiploads of tea into the Boston Harbor to protest against a tax policy of the British government. Consider fairly recently, it's probably not possible for most of us to think of a city like Baghdad or a place like Pearl Harbor without thinking of war. We think of places like Beijing and Tiananmen Square or a large U.S. city called Dallas and the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. What about Berlin, those dramatic pictures and videos we've seen of the tearing down of the wall? Or of Rincon? Okay, not every city registers high on the historic scale of significance. Now, in the same way, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, had become a city known. But sadly, not for its being the central place of worship for the people of God, but rather as a place where the prophets of God were killed. The messengers of God were stoned to death. Jerusalem had the first claim on God's chosen messengers and servants, but despite this fact, it is to this city that we see this morning that Jesus is confidently and faithfully moving toward that he might fulfill all that he came to the earth to do. So let's look together beginning in verse 31 of Luke chapter 13. At that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, I need to point out that Luke is keeping us tied to the text that we looked at last week when he says, At that very hour. 
We've identified several times that Luke doesn't generally write in a chronological order in the Gospel of Luke. So when he does provide some kind of chronological clue, it's important for us to take note of it in the text. Now, if you recall from last week, Jesus was asked by a Jewish man in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus' response was directed straight at that man. And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, the importance of Jesus's direct address of this Jewish man comes into full light when he provides this shocking revelation that people will come from the east and the west and from the north and south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was telling this Jewish man that while he, along with many of his Jewish kinsmen, assumed that they were okay, that they would be saved in the end because they were ethnically Jewish, Jesus tells him instead, not only will many of you Jews be excluded, but among those who will be included in the kingdom of God are Gentiles. Now, the Jews, for the most part, thought that they were going to be saved in the end simply because of their ethnicity. However, we learn in the scriptures that Jewishness does not save. It never has. It never will. The Apostle Paul deals with this extensively in the book of Romans, particularly in chapters 4 and 9. In chapter 9, he writes this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, it's not those who have the flesh of a Jewish person, not ethnicity, but rather those who are believing in Christ. They're the believing Jews. There were also unbelieving Jews. It was faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that was what saved, and it is what saves. It's not ethnicity. So Luke draws our attention to the fact in this passage that he's, he's having a continuation of thought here. Jesus is not done dealing with the plight of the Jews. And so we see here now in the same hour as he spoke with this man, several Pharisees approach Jesus. And they're seemingly posing as his allies. But we know better than this, don't we? They wanted to appear to Jesus as though they were benefiting him, looking out for his well-being, but such a notion could not be further from the truth. And of course, they weren't going to fool Jesus. 
They tell him, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. They forgot to say, so do we. (laughs) You see, Jesus may have been the Lamb of God. But when a wolf tells a lamb that they have their best interests in mind, a lamb is going to think twice and be more than a little bit suspicious. Jesus wasn't fooled into thinking anything other than what was truly going on in this situation. His enemies, the Pharisees and Herod, were working together toward Jesus' demise. Now at this point, Herod's reputation has been damaged politically because of the beheading of John the Baptist. So to have another murder, and at that the murder of a very popular rabbi on his hands was too much. So instead of going to Jesus directly, Herod used the Pharisees to pass on this threat to Jesus with the hope that he would be scared to, uh, he would be scared and he would go south to Judea. And of course, all of this worked well for the Pharisees too, because if Herod's ploy worked out, if Jesus could be manipulated to go into Judea, He would fall into the hands of the very powerful Sanhedrin. So the supposed warning of the Pharisees was no warning at all. It was a devious plot, and Jesus sees right through it. Let's look in verse 32. He said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus provides a response to both Herod and the Pharisees. He gives some prophetic insight into what lies ahead for him. First, Jesus tells the Pharisees to return a message to Herod, and he calls him that fox. The expression Jesus uses here isn't simply implying what we might expect in our vernacular today, that he was cunning and crafty. No, it was filled with a great amount of contempt You know, in all of the gospel accounts, even though Jesus had many um, difficult encounters, he had uh, many enemies, it was with Herod alone that Jesus showed such great contempt. If you know the biblical story, you know that eventually Jesus would find himself standing before Herod. And he has not one single word for him. One commentator writes, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. Herod was a dead man in every way. So what is contained here in Jesus' actual response? Let's examine this a bit. He says, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. So, in one sense, Jesus is telling Herod, I'm doing what I'm here to do. And I will continue to do it today, and I will do it tomorrow, and I will do it until I am finished. Jesus is telling Herod, your attempts to manipulate do not deter me. 
I'm here with a purpose, and my purpose will be fulfilled. And beyond that, Herod and the Pharisees would have been clueless as to what Jesus was saying with greater prophetic insight here. But you who have eyes to see and ears to hear, you understand what Jesus is alluding to. This is a reference to Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection. Notice the three-day reference in what Jesus says. On the third day, I finish my course. So taken all together, Jesus is saying what we have recorded in John chapter 10 and verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. In other words, Herod, who cares what Herod thinks? He can't take me down. He doesn't have that kind of authority. I am here to fulfill the covenant of redemption that I've made with my Father, and I am under divine authority. I will do as I was sent here to do. And that includes the laying down of my life for my sheep and then raising again from the dead on the third day. Now Jesus provides a similar response to the Pharisees, and it's nothing short of scathing. Look again at verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Two things going on here. First, is an absolutely sarcastic, scathing rebuke from Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Jerusalem holds the crown. Jerusalem has the gold medal. Jerusalem is in first place by a long shot when it comes to murdering prophets. And so here... You have the highest of all occasions, the opportunity for you to kill me who is the awaited Messiah. You will not be deprived of that privilege, Jerusalem. It would not be fitting for the greatest of all prophets to die outside of that city. Wow. But you see, the second thing we see here, again, is this prophetic statement from Jesus regarding his death. I know that as I head toward Jerusalem, I am moving nearer and nearer to the cross. I will be killed in Jerusalem. Now let's just let that settle on us for a minute. Imagine every step forward. Every passing day for Jesus was a step toward taking upon himself the full wrath of the Father. Suffering more on a cross in a few hours than any sinner will ever suffer for eternity in hell. And yet he did it with such determination, with absolute resolve, with unrelenting perseverance. Now I'm fully aware that if I knew that my life would end in a horrific, excruciating way that no man has ever or will ever experience again, I wouldn't be determined to move more and more faithfully toward it. I would do everything I could to move away. 
I would want to avoid it, but that's not Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died for us, and he did so willingly that we might live. He didn't just happen onto death. He didn't just mix things up a little too much and get caught in the crossfire of it all. He meticulously planned every single step toward the cross and he did it with confidence, he did it with bravery, and he did it with a tenacious love for you and for me. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to hear about this Jesus that you reject. The merciless terror of the cross awaited Jesus. And not just dying on a cross like hundreds of criminals did in his day, but on that cross, taking upon himself the punishment for the sins of man. Every one of us deserves to die and to pay the penalty for our own sins. And because you are created with a sense of what is just, you know that's true even if you deny it. However, for a sinless, perfect man to not only be slaughtered by other men, but to also take the punishment from the Father that is rightly deserved by the sins of God's people, there is no greater love. You see, in being slaughtered as a perfect, spotless sacrifice, Jesus provided that which is necessary for sinful man to stand righteous before God. But it's not a righteousness that you and I provide. It is a right standing that we, not obtaining through our efforts, but that comes by way of repentance of our sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father made Jesus the Son who knew no sin to be sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. To obtain a great salvation, we are commanded to repent of our sin, to recognize that we are sinful, broken people. We've offended a holy and righteous God. And to put our faith, not in our own works, not in our own righteousness, but in Jesus Christ alone. We must submit ourselves, not to our own lordship, but to the lordship of Christ the King. Friend, why would you reject this free, merciful offer from God that you can be set free from paying the penalty of your own sin for eternity and death and condemnation? Christ has made a way. And He calls you to repent of your sin and to believe in Him. In the face of a horrendous death that no man could ever imagine, Jesus' love for others drove him on. He was truly sympathetic with those who came to him, totally engaged when they spoke. He was tender with every true need. He wore himself out physically, ministering to others, and all the while he moved closer and closer and closer to his cosmic excruciation. This is the marvelous, glorious life of Jesus, the incarnate Son, the exalted Son, our Savior, our High Priest, our King. 
And the writer of the Hebrews of Hebrews tells us in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friend, do not reject Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Brothers and sisters, what greater love can be shown to us than that Christ has laid down his own life for us and made us to be his friends? made us to be his brothers and sisters, made us to be sons and daughters of Almighty God. Now, Jesus has focused his comments in this passage toward those who sought to see his demise, both Herod and the Pharisees. But he now takes it even further, and he turns his attention to all of Jerusalem. Look at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Here we get to the heart of what Luke is highlighting in this text. It's at the heart of what leaves sinful men in unbelief, And it's the unwillingness to be sheltered under the wings of Christ. The issue at stake here is Christ's lordship. In other words, who is going to be king in your life? Is it you? Is it your your hobbies or your job or your family? Or is it going to be Christ? Jesus considered Jerusalem. He considered the people of all the world who had the greatest opportunity to know and to recognize who Jesus was and what he was doing. And he lamented at their unwillingness to turn to him as the Messiah that they were supposedly waiting for. He says, oh, you people who kill the prophets and stone those to death who are sent to give you the message of God and to give warning of what is to come. This is an agonizing, sorrowful cry from Jesus for the state of the people's hearts. They were lost. Remember last week, most of them will be shut out of the kingdom of God and they didn't know it and they seemingly didn't care. But you know, as we look at the Israelites, these Jewish people, we see they have so much that has been presented to them to show them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Friends, how much more do we have today than they ever had that we would know and trust and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? On the day of judgment, there will be no excuse for mankind. 
Jesus offers an illustration of care and concern and of love and of tenderness. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? At this point in Jesus' ministry, there is no doubt whatsoever that he has shown these people great love, great care and tenderness and mercy, and yet they are unwilling to come to him. In fact, they hate him. They want him dead. He offers warmth. He offers shelter and protection. This is what Jesus longs to do for us. Instead of leaving us out to wander about the earth, trying to find our way on our own, he provides a warm home on a cold night. He tucks us under his wing. He shields us from all harm. So we see two things here which give life to a common phrase that we're all probably familiar with. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. What do we hear in Jesus' words? We hear his absolute willingness to provide for man what he needs most, and that is salvation. Nobody can question the great lengths that Jesus went to in order to provide that which is most necessary for all of mankind. And yet, while a man can be brought face to face with his sin and have the remedy of Christ provided, his unwillingness to submit to Christ as Lord will keep him from the kingdom of God. In essence, it's saying, I don't need what Jesus provides. I'm fine on my own. But here's the stark reality of all of this for every one of us. That's the very sentiment that every single one of our hearts conveyed prior to our becoming new creations in Jesus Christ. And it's the very thing we convey every time we sin. It's only by God's grace that any one of us says, I came to Christ. I found shelter under his wings. And then when we've been given that shelter, it's only by God's grace. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit within us that every time we seek to run out from under Jesus' protection and care and love and tenderness that we turn back to Christ in repentance. It's only by God's grace that any of us has steady perseverance in the Christian life. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? And why, in general, does mankind reject the lordship of Jesus? Because on his own, man cannot not reject Christ. Man, by nature, as the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, is a child of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. I love me and you love you, and unless God breaks in and changes our hearts, making us to be new creations in Christ... We will continue in self-love, in self-exaltation, and it will all be to our own demise. 
And we see this end reached in the prophetic announcement of Jesus over Jerusalem in verse 35. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of the Jews being unwilling to submit to Jesus, he gave the prophetic word, your house is forsaken. What a terrible, terrible announcement. The center of the Israelite nation, Jerusalem, was absolutely, utterly destroyed in the year A.D. 70. And before it was destroyed, the entire city was starved. The earliest writings we have of the destruction of Jerusalem are from the Jewish historian named Josephus. And he wrote that the roofs were thronged with famished women, with babies in their arms, and the alleys were filled with corpses of the elderly. In other words, women stood on the rooftops of their houses with their babies in arms and they were starved and they were alone while all of the elderly died in the streets below. Children and young people were swollen in their bellies from starvation and he writes that they roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. But there was no lamenting, there was no wailing, because famine had strangled their emotions. Jerusalem couldn't even bury all the bodies, so they were flung over the wall. And the only thing that broke the silence was the laughter of robbers stripping the bodies of all that was on them. It's a despicable, horrible picture. But it was the ultimate demise of a people who rejected all that God had blessed them with for many ages, ultimately culminating in the merciless slaughter of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, don't hear me saying that this is simply the sin of the Jews. Because Christ went to the cross willingly, and he went for our sin. He didn't simply die because the Jews were bloodthirsty and evil. He went to the cross because there was no other way for you and I that we could rightly and justly be set free from the bondage of sin and death. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Sure, in the physical sense, yes. But you and I, in all of our unwillingness to submit to the Lordship of Christ... We all killed Jesus. There's an old hymn. Many of you probably know it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there. Every ounce of God's wrath was poured out on him in that moment because the penalty of death is to be paid for every last sin. But hear this as well, because Jesus' last word upon Jerusalem was not judgment. Jesus said, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. 
And the implication is that there will be a believing people among those ethnic Jews at the second coming of Christ. In other words, when Christ returns, there will be those who are ethnically Jewish who will have faith in Jesus Christ, the one and only true Messiah. There is no other way of salvation. Their Jewishness does not save. However, they, along with Gentiles from all over the earth, will bow their knee together with us and say, Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so, Christian, there's a question in all of this that we need to be asking of ourselves. Are we daily striving to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? Well, it's quite simple. Jesus spoke it very plainly when he said, If you love me, you will do what I command. Is your very life consumed with a desire to know Christ in a more intimate way of communion? Those of you who reject the Lordship of Christ, what is your plan on the day of judgment? Upon what will you stand and plead your case before the judge of all mankind that he should allow you into your kingdom? What are you going to say? A king will not have subjects in his kingdom who do not submit to his kingship. Will you bow your knee to Jesus? There's a great theme throughout the scriptures, which is poignantly displayed here in these five verses. Everything regarding salvation has to do with and is completely dependent upon Jesus's loving, steadfast determination to die upon a cross for his people. He wasn't moved by Herod. He would not change the course set before him by the Father. And in fact, he showed great contempt for Herod for even suggesting that he do so. Jesus would continue on the road to Jerusalem until he got there. And when he got there, he would face the same end as every other true prophet of God in that city. He would die. Jesus was determined to die for sinners like us. And he would not be deterred. He did it because he chose to do so. He did it in fulfillment of the agreement made between him and the Father in eternity past. And this determination was grounded in the tender love of Jesus who willingly takes his people under his wing. Those who are unwilling are under the just judgment of God. But the gospel goes out to them again and again, and again, and again. And in the end, those who respond willingly will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.